And turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job. It can be found in your uh, pew Bibles on page 788. It's right before the book of Psalms. And as you're turning there, may I remind you that we are in a series in the morning that I'm calling kind of like big questions. Big questions. It's part of the Explore God initiative that we are doing. These are questions that uh, people who are curious about Christianity have questions about uh, this faith, what we believe might ask. But I also think these are questions that many of us as Christians still ponder, still wonder about, particularly the question that we are dealing with today. It seems to be one that never really goes away. Why does God allow pain and suffering. Read with me Job, the first two chapters, often called the prologue. The word of God. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hands and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up 
and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all that he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. As for the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If there is any question that has troubled the masses for centuries, it is the question of suffering. And typically there are two ways to answer this question. One is what some might call the theological approach. Maybe this is the way you would answer an atheist who's asking about evil in this world as a gotcha question to the Christian. Someone who is antagonistic toward Christianity only asks this question to continue in their sin and justify their hatred of a God that they know exists. But there's another way this question is asked. It is often asked by those who have personally and deeply experienced the pain and suffering of this world. They lost a young child to cancer. They were molested and abused as a young person. They have family members who have been shot down the streets of Chicago. Whatever it may be, they have faced and felt the reality of evil in this world. When someone like that asks the question, 
They don't want a theological answer. They don't want the best argument you have from the scriptures. They really want to know, does God care? Does God care? They really want to know if there's a reason for the suffering that they have experienced. Or is it meaningless? And I pray as we look at the story of Job this morning that we would find this answer. The suffering of Christ shows not only that God cares, but that our suffering has purpose. The suffering of Christ shows not only that God cares, but that our suffering has purpose. And we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the sovereign God. Second, we're going to look at the suffering servant. And third, we're going to look at the so what of suffering. The so what of suffering. Let's look at that first point, the sovereign God. Now, often when we discuss this question, why does God allow pain and suffering, there is a deep concern to defend the character of God. In fact, there's an entire philosophy called theodicy. Theo, God, deceit, righteousness, decay. The righteousness of God. How can we defend the righteousness of God if we are told in scriptures that God is an all-good God, that God is an all-powerful God, yet God didn't do something when that three-year-old drowned in the swimming pool. God didn't do something when that man raped that woman. So that leads many to say, either God is not all good, or God is not all powerful. And there's plenty of answers, even Christian theological answers, that attempt to get God off the hook, so to speak, in this conversation. They say that in some way God has limited his power. That it's not that he doesn't want to stop these things, but he's unable to stop these things because God has chosen to give all people free will. But that begs a question. Because if God knew that all of these things were going to happen, if he created people with free will then why did God do it? What I'm telling you is that as often is the case with these types of questions, you cannot get away from God. You're always going to end up back at God. You're always going to come back to God. And what I want to declare to you of great importance this morning is that God doesn't want off the hook in this situation. God doesn't want off the hook when it comes to the issue of allowing pain and suffering. He doesn't need off the hook. And we see that very clearly in the book of Job. 
God not only allows pain and suffering, but God has ordained all things that come to pass in this world. And we consider some of the words from our beloved Heidelberg Catechism, which tells us that when we confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that I believe that he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. That the providence of God means that all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Where do we see that in the book of Job? Well, we see it in the throne room scenes of the prologue of Job. There are two different scenes going on. There's a heavenly scene and there's an earthly scene. Now, we the reader, we're keyed into the heavenly scene, but Job, he's not. He's not aware of these interactions that happen between God and Satan. But we are. We are told that Job is a great man, blameless, fearing God, the greatest man among all the people of Eve. We're going to talk more about him. But listen here. Verse 6, we're told that Satan, the Satan, the accuser of the brethren... This harkens back to the serpent in the garden we've already talked about. Satan answered the Lord when he asked him, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. To many of us, this is a bizarre situation, a bizarre interaction. Unless we know that, as Martin Luther said, Satan is God's Satan. That is to say that God is the ultimate sovereign. And this may be shocking to some of you, but Satan cannot do anything that God does not allow. God... And this encounter, you could say, is setting Job up. You remember the story of Joseph when he said to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In every evil, suffering, painful experience in this life, we can present that same reality. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. In our minds, that's difficult to bring together. But it's not in the mind of God. God is setting Job up. What do I mean by this? Well, John Piper once said, it would be like if a jewelry thief went into a jewelry store and was looking around for the biggest diamond in there. And the owner of the jewelry store happened to be there. And he didn't realize it. And the owner of the jewelry store asked the jewelry thief, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm looking for a diamond and steel. And the owner of the jewelry store said, well, have you seen the greatest diamond I have? It's right over here. Here's the key. Have you seen Job, my greatest servant, the servant of God? Here he is. I present him to you as the best case scenario. Number one, 
He's my trophy. But what does Satan say? Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. What's going on here? What's going on here is this. That in every situation of pain and suffering in the life of a believer, Satan wants to destroy your faith. God wants to strengthen your faith, wants to encourage your faith. Satan wants to destroy your faith. God wants to encourage your faith, strengthen your faith. And Satan, who is not all-knowing and all-powerful, says, I think I know how I can destroy Job's faith. And that's because, I'm going to tell you, Job is a believer in the prosperity gospel. Because the only reason, Satan says to God, that Job worships you is because you have provided for him much wealth and much health. What is on display for us here in the book of Job is to see whether Job worships God for God's sake. If God is the most glorious thing to Job, the most wonderful, the most necessary, the most beautiful possession, if God is the gospel, and so the Lord said, very well, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and then we are to understand as the reader, that all that comes to Job in this next portion of the passage is from Satan's hand. The destruction of all his possessions and the death of his children. Interestingly enough, we see in this list of things that not only personal evil happens, that is, the Sabians and the Chaldeans kill, but also what we often call natural disasters happen. That is to say, we can't get God off the hook by saying we're in sin because the natural disasters speak to us of both a curse in our hearts and a curse in the world. It's a horrible, horrible situation that Job has just experienced. He has lost all that he had, including his children. He has gone from exaltation to humiliation. From the greatest to the least. From having much to having nothing. And listen to what Job understands. He fell to the ground and worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave. And the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job knows whose hand all this tragedy and calamity has come from, ultimately. And he says, it's not from Satan. It's from the Lord. And if that's not bad enough, all that he had taken from him, now there's a second scene in heaven. And Job is presented to Satan again by the Lord. And he says, he has maintained his integrity. Though you incited me 
against him, God says. To ruin him without any reason, maybe a better translation would be without any purpose. That is to say that what Job experienced was not because of what Job did. He was undeserving of it. And then Satan says, well, maybe if Job believes in the wealth gospel, he also believes in the health gospel. So he will you know, continue to worship you if he's healthy, but take his health from him, he'll curse you to your face. And so Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord and inflicts Job with painful sores, the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And in verse 9, his wife said to him, and we shouldn't give her too much of a hard time. She's lost all of her children and everything that she has. She tells him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job understands this. These are not words that she is speaking out of reason, but out of deep pain. He says, you're speaking like one of the foolish women. He does not call her one, but say she is speaking like one. And then he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this Job did not sin in what he said. And the rest of the entire book of Job, everybody in the book will agree on one thing. God is sovereign. Nobody disagrees on that. God is sovereign in purposing the evil and the calamity and the pain and the suffering that Job experiences. God does not only allow it, he purposes it. He is the sovereign God. And I believe to me, that's a comfort. Now let's look at the second part, the suffering servant. Now why is it then that God purposes the suffering of Job here? And what does that tell us? about the big picture. Well, I want us to compare two people in this portion. And that is Job and our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there are many, many things in Job that point us to a greater reality that is to come. That is to say that many come to the book of Job and say that Job is a picture for us of the everyday believer. And I think there are elements in which we can learn from that, but I think there's something even more important to do. To not use Job as the model of suffering, as to understand our suffering and the purpose for our suffering, but to see Job as pointing us to Christ and from the cross being able to understand our suffering, the purpose of it, and the expression of God's grace and mercy in it. You understand what I'm saying there? Job points us to Christ, and Christ helps us to understand the grace and mercy and, and love and care of God and suffering, and the purpose, the meaning, the so what of our suffering. And why do I say that? Well, Job, who I believe was a true historical person, has characteristics about him and elements in his story that tell us that he's a type of Christ, that he's pointing to Christ. First, we're told that he's blameless and upright, feared God, and shunned evil. The list of all his possessions 
Speak of perfect numbers, seven and three. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500, 500. These are all the number 10, completion, finality. And we're told that he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Job is in a like, kind of like Melchizedek, who comes into the picture and is out of the picture and who's used by the author of Hebrews to point us to the priestly line of Christ. Job is not part of the people of Israel. He's from the East. He's probably at the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, and so on. But he is a believer in Yahweh, a truster in Yahweh. We see that Job is a very pious man, so much so that he sees that when his children gather for a time of feasting, that we shouldn't really necessarily understand as a, a kind of pagan, get drunk and, 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 uh, and perform sexual uh, mischievousness or anything like that. But he wants to make sure that his children are honoring God. So they have these feasts and he would have them purified. And then in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God and their hearts. Job is zealous for the name of God. And he makes atonement for his children. Not only that, but we're told that the greatest man in the east becomes the most despised man in the east. Remember what I told you. He went from exaltation to humiliation. But in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And then, as Job gets these boils all over his body, we're told that he poured dust on his head that he went out and to the place of dust. This place is the place in which Christ would later call Gehenna. A dump. A burning. Trash. That is to say that here in this picture we're told that Job's suffering it's so, so bad that as if he's in hell. It is as if he is in hell. Many of the words that Job speaks concerning the pain and the suffering that he has gone through echo words like Psalm 22, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The people look at me. Isaiah 53, I am cut off from the people. I am nothing to be looked at. I am suffering. I'm a suffering servant. Remember Job called the servant of God. Have you considered my servant? Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant of God. Job, in his suffering, begins to point us to the suffering of Christ our Savior. And it is in the suffering of Christ our Savior that we begin to understand why it is that God has deemed that pain and suffering would be in this world. We need to take a step back because we need to understand ultimately 
That this entire world exists to display the glory of God's wrath and grace. You understand that, right? This entire world exists to display the glory of God's wrath and grace. His righteousness and His judgment and His love and His mercy. Now, people of God, tell me where God's wrath and grace are most clearly and perfectly displayed in the history of redemption. You can answer. What? On the cross. On the cross. You want to know why God has deemed that pain and suffering would happen in this world? It's so that through the pain and suffering of Jesus Christ, he could display to you how great, how glorious, how wonderful, how amazing he is. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that God is more glorified through the pain and suffering of Christ? Or do you think God would be more glorified if Christ did not need to suffer? God, in his sovereign wisdom, although he himself is not the author of sin, ordained that sin and evil would exist in this world so that through Jesus Christ he could display the attributes of his wrath and grace most clearly so that people could know that in Christ there is salvation for sin. And Job begins to key us in to that reality that the whole history of redemption is about the humiliation and exaltation of Christ our Savior. But so what? Right? So what? What I mean by that is maybe you're not moved by the fact the creation that the history of this world, that all things were, were made, were created, so that we could see in Christ the glory of God's grace. That even in the book of Revelation, we're told that Christ is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Maybe you're not moved by that. Because for whatever reason, it doesn't help the fact that you That you experience pain. For that, for the so what of suffering, I'd like to go to Romans 8, where I want to point out to you something that was shown to me and speaks so clearly to me. We, of course, all of us are familiar with chapter 8, verse 28. This is page 1,757 in your few Bibles. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
This is the fact that we, in Christ, the suffering servant, the suffering Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world, were elected, predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That He might be the firstborn among among many brothers, and those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. But what are all these things that work together for the good of those who love God and who are called According to his purpose. Verse 31 tells us. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. But gave himself up for us all. How will he not also. Along with him. Graciously give us all things. Okay. Is that the health wealth gospel? Graciously give us all things? No. Look at this list. Of all the things that God in his grace will give us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here... The understanding that we're more than conquerors is not that we never face or experience these things. That is the way of the cross. The way of suffering is the way of a Christian. That is a promise. But that's not what we want to know. We want to know, does God care? In Christ, we see that God cares. We want to know, does our suffering have a purpose? Does God use it? Does God get glory from it? And here's my answer to you. That Christians, as we suffer, we share in the sufferings of Christ. That the fact that we are more than conquerors does not mean that we avoid trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or slaughter, or death. The fact that we're more than conquerors is that God takes all those things and uses them for our good. He takes them and he uses them for our good and for his glory. Christian, you have never experienced One single ounce of purposeless pain and suffering in this world. The words of scripture tell us that there is a weight of glory being stored up for you that cannot even be compared to the suffering you are experiencing in this life. And it's all, it's all For your good, because in the great wisdom of God, he determined that sin and evil and suffering would exist in this world so that he could show you the greatness and the glory of his grace in Christ Jesus. May that be a wonderful comfort. To you, to know that the suffering of Christ not only shows that God cares, 
He is not absent from suffering. But also that our suffering has a purpose. Amen. God, we love you. For all that you have done for us. We pray, Lord, that in our hearts we would never seem to think that if we had done it, we would have done it a different way, a better way than you have done it. To know that in the suffering of Christ we see the meaning and the purpose for the sin and the suffering and the pain that you have allowed to happen, that you have ordained to happen in this world. That God, as we find comfort in your sovereign and providential fatherly hand, as we find comfort in the suffering of Job, which points us to the suffering of Christ, that we may not lose heart, that we may know the reason for our suffering, that we are being conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that in that, we are glorifying you and the grace and the mercy and the wrath and the judgment and righteousness that you have displayed in the suffering of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now,